Well, good morning. Good morning, New Life Church. My name is Rachel, and I'm on the teaching team here at New Life. And if this, if this is your first Sunday with us, or uh, maybe you weren't here last week, you'll notice that we're set up a little differently this morning. Um, that's because once a year we bust out our, our round tables and we have a shorter sermon so that we can actually engage God's word and we can engage the teaching together as a group. And in the past, this has just been really life-giving and really fun. So that's why we're set up like this this morning. And so this year for our roundtable series, we're doing a series on the character of God. And I don't think there is a more important question for us to ask than who do we believe that God is? And most of us, when it comes to answering this question, we have a baseline that we, that we come with, right? We have a baseline of who we think that God is and that we've either gotten it from the Bible some way or even more often we've gotten it from our past We've gotten it from other experiences we've had, from cultural uh, ways that culture defines who God is, right? And so when we enter the biblical narrative, it can be really hard to allow the Bible to be the one that defines and reveals who God is instead of our own baggage and our assumptions, right? And so the heart behind this sermon series is to honestly and openly evaluate our own hearts and to ask the question, who do I really believe God is? Is he kind and forgiving? Is he mean or angry or punishing? Maybe a combination of both. Identifying these beliefs is crucial to being able to allow God's word, the Bible, to heal and restore who we believe he is. And there's no better place to start exploring this question than Exodus 34, 6 through 7. So it's here that God actually describes himself and who he is for the very first time in the Bible. God himself is going to set the baseline for who he is. And he is choosing to do so in a really intense and devastating moment. So God and Israel are in the middle of forming this covenant relationship. Think of it like they're getting married. And literally right after Israel says, I do, signs the marriage contract with God, they immediately cheat on God with a golden statue of a calf and then do all these weird sexual acts around it. Right? God has so generously and miraculously rescued them from slavery He's brought them to this place of safety, and they returned his love with a slap in the face. And it's in this context that God describes himself for the first time. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And so the very first, God, the, the very first word that God describes himself as is 
compassionate. And this is the character trait of God that we're going to discuss this morning, God's compassion. So this word, compassion, is the Hebrew word, rachamim. Everyone say, ra ha Rachamim. Nice, nailed it. The first thing, <laughs> the first thing that makes rachamim unique is that it's an emotional word. It's depicted as centered deep in the core of a person. Everyone take your, your hand and put it in the, in the middle of you, like in your belly. It's, it's centered deep. This word rachamim is deep in the core of who you are. It is not intellectual or philosophical. Rachamim is a physical sensation you feel deep in your body. And it is a feeling that you have for another person. But what's fascinating and my most favorite thing about rachamim is its root word, where it comes from. It's translated in the feminine gender, and it is the Hebrew word for womb. Everyone say womb. womb. So the place you feel rachamim in your body is your womb. So this basically what God is saying, he is describing himself as literally wombful, wombish, wombie, or womb-like. And so he's describing himself as an emotional God who is deeply emotionally attached to us as a mother is deeply attached to the child of her womb. Now this may take us a moment to wrap our heads around this. Of all the words God could have used to describe himself, the very first word in the whole Bible, the very first word that he chooses is a feminine, emotional word. Now, it should not surprise us that God is describing himself here as a mother, since both male and female are made in his image, right? We should expect to see both male and female depictions of God in the Bible. And we do. We're seeing God as a mother here, and we see them all throughout the Old and the New Testament. But what might also be challenging is thinking about God as deeply emotional because there can be a negative stigma that comes with the word emotional, right? So when you think of an emotional person, what do you think of? Just call it out. What do you think of? An emotional person. What is it? Crazy? Okay. Capricious? Okay. Any other words? Emotional. Roller coaster, yes. Flighty, unpredictable, moody. But, so we can wrestle with, with God being emotional because the Bible clearly depicts God as unchanging and unmovable, right? He's the, the rock of ages, right? But the question we need to ask is, can God be unchanging and emotional at the same time? So this, I think this needs to be made clear. God is not moody, nor is he capricious, meaning, well, it all kind of depends on the day as to whether or not he'll answer you. Like, you really need to catch him after a good nap. 
No, he's not, he's not like that. You don't have to walk on eggshells around God. God is not driven by how he feels in the moment like we are. Uh, just repeat that after me. God is not driven, God is not driven by, how by how he feels in the moment. God is emotional in the sense that he has deep feelings, but he is not emotional in the sense of being fickle and unpredictable. Now, we, not, we might not be able to predict his plan and his purpose, right? But when it comes to his character, he is extremely predictable. And that's what these two verses that we're discussing in Exodus are all about. God is saying, this is who I am. I am compassionate. And you can know for sure, I will always be compassionate. I will always be emotionally moved with deep compassion for the child of my womb. This will never, ever, ever change. So God is emotional and forever unchanging at the same time. So then when does exactly, or when does God exactly show compassion then in the Bible? Now the word compassion in the Bible is often used to describe God's emotional response to his people when they cry out to him in their suffering. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, the Israelites have just been released from Babylonian captivity and they have come back to their land. And Nehemiah is leading them to renew their commitment to God, just like Moses led the Israelites to, to commit to God, right? He's, he's leading them back and he summarizes Israel's entire history after God generously gave them the promised land. This is what he says in Nehemiah 9, 27 through 28. Therefore, because the people turned away, you turned them over to the hands of oppressors. But when they cried out to you in their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great rachamim, compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they turned from you again. Everyone say again. So you again, say again, gave them over to their enemies, and when they cried out to you, you heard their cries. Say many times. You rescued them according to your rachamim, compassion. So the people consistently abandoned God again and again, and again. But God's compassion, his wombfulness, his emotional bond and attachment to them compels him to respond to their cries. Just as a parent runs to rescue their child when they cry out to them in, in, when they're in danger. And what is incredibly important to notice here is that the moral quality of the people doesn't really seem to matter. The moral quality of the people doesn't seem to matter. It is the crying out that matters. He is moved by the cries and the distress of his people every single time. 
So what is it about crying out that activates God's compassion? Now, in the Bible, compassion is almost always connected with vulnerability. Everyone say vulnerability. It is striking how much rachamim is used in power relationships in the biblical narrative. The one having compassion is someone who is in a place of more advantage or privilege or in a place of power. And the objects of compassion are always those who are vulnerable, weak, and fragile. So what this reveals to us about God's character is he is drawn to us because of our frailty and our powerlessness. So I want everyone to repeat something after me. God is drawn to me because I'm weak and frail, not because I'm strong and awesome. And this is where our head knowledge clashes with what we actually believe about how God feels towards us. There is something about struggling with the same stuff, the same sin, over and over and over again, and being in a position where we are weak and frail and powerless that brings to the surface what we really believe about God. It, we have a propensity to believe he's done with me this time to isolate and distance ourselves from him and from others in shame and guilt and defeat. Anyone else? I, I do this. Anyone here? Yes. Yes. If we're honest, yes. This is what we do. And what can be even harder is to cry out to God when we have really, really messed up or failed. I think each of us in here has maybe some sin from our past like a really big one, or maybe several big ones, things that we have done that absolutely cannot be taken back, that were really dumb, that were really, we did it when we were young, whatever, we were really vulnerable. And it's maybe something that we can't shake, that kind of follows us around or haunts us. So Israel's most famous king, David, commits adultery with one of his high-ranking officer's wives, impregnates her, and then murders him to cover up his sin. A prophet named Nathan straight up calls him out on his sin and is like, I know what you've done, David, and God knows what you've done, and he is not pleased with you. So David's totally exposed and full of shame over what he has done. I mean, he's really messed up in a way that can never be taken back, ever and what do you think he does? I mean, be honest, what would you do? What would you do in David's situation? Hide in a hole forever so no one would see me? In Psalm 51, David cries out to God. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your rachamim, compassion. Forgive me. David cries out. And notice, David has just used three of the five character traits 
that God reveals about himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. What are they? Same again? All together. Same again. Rachamim, compassion, yes. He's just used three of them because David knows the story of the golden calf. He has literally meditated on it all of his life. Like half of the Psalms that David wrote are him meditating on the golden calf story. And so what David is saying here is that the golden calf story isn't just some archaic, irrelevant story that happened hundreds of years before his time. The golden calf story is about him. The golden calf story is about you and me and the human condition. It is about our propensity to betray, abandon, and disobey God when it matters most. And David is saying, I know I don't deserve your compassion. But your people, after they cheated on you with the golden calf, they didn't deserve it either. But when Moses cried out to you on their behalf, you were moved with compassion and you forgave them. And so now I am calling out to you. I am crying out to you, knowing that I can trust you to be consistent in your character. And it's important to see here that David knows God's compassion is not just limited to how he feels. Yes, rachamim is something that God feels in the womb, in the, in the most intimate, sacred space. But in no instance in the entire biblical narrative does God ever have compassion and not do something. If you are reading a story in the Bible and it says God had compassion, get ready because he's about to take action. And in almost every instance, God's compassion is demonstrated with, with guess what? It's demonstrated with forgiveness and with delivering from bondage. And this is incredible news for us. It's incredible news for us because if we have a need to be delivered, what happened? We messed up. If we need to be forgiven, we messed up, right? Yeah, we need those things because we are flawed and we failed. And so even if we totally walk away from God, even if we've disobeyed him or we're struggling with him or we're wrestling with him, when we cry out to him, we can know with every fiber of our being that he will be deeply moved with compassion. Not because we deserve it, but because God is so deeply invested in the children of his womb and he will always respond. In the Old Testament, you see this phrase, turn back toward God, a lot. So God's people are constantly turning away from him. And he is constantly sending prophets saying, come back, turn back to me. And what the compassionate nature of God reveals to us is that even when we constantly turn our backs on him, he is perpetually turned towards us, always. 
It is never him that turns away from us. It is always us that turns from him. Always. He will always and consistently respond to the cries of his hurting people. He is present, he is grieved, and he is moved to respond with deliverance and forgiveness. So to hope in God's compassion is to trust in his deep emotional bond to his people as a mother is attached to the child of her womb. And the thing is, I think most of the people in this room would say, yeah, I I think that God's compassionate. And I think that's something I would say myself. But then I had to ask myself a really hard question. When I sin or fail or struggle, how long does it take me to cry out to God? How long does it take you? Are you struggling right now? Have you cried out to him? And I think most of the time it takes us far too long because unfortunately there is this disconnect between what we know to be true logically and what we actually believe. Do we really trust in God's character? Do we really trust and believe he will be moved with compassion even after we have failed him? And so this is what I'd like for us to very honestly discuss as we move towards our roundtable discussions. We've got questions in the middle of the table. And um, if we could keep our tables to about four people, that would be perfect. And um, so we're going to go ahead and grab our questions and discuss. And then uh, I will come back up after we've discussed for a while and close us out in prayer.